0: So one of my favourite movies of all time is the movie Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. And it's about this incredibly powerful Roman general, whose name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. And his family is killed by the powers that be. He is sold as a slave, and eventually he turns into a gladiator he becomes so popular and powerful not only in the arena but in the minds and the hearts of the empire that eventually he threatens the powers that be which are the same powers that killed his family now we maybe love these kind of period dramas and just by the way i think one of the best things about the movie maybe i'm biased here is the soundtrack one of the most beautiful soundtracks out there But now that kind of thing gladiators blood and guts maybe that's fine for the movies but not for real life however while that movie may be fictional gladiatorial arenas were very real where tens of thousands of people would pay and go and spend their free time and spend their money to watch humans kill Other humans in the most horrifying ways at times. Throw in some Christians sometimes, throw in some slaves, throw in some wild animals and there was such a national bloodlust for this that maybe causes you and I to be absolutely sickened especially when it comes to our modern sensibilities and then we kind of press stop when it gets to the end of the movie we forget about history we go back to our safe homes our safe lives our safe families and our safe bibles you know the bibles that are really there to exist so that we can take out little cute little verses and put them on nice little pictures of mountains and butterflies and dolphins and make ourselves feel good you know those bibles well Sometimes what we come face to face with are some of the less PG parts of the Bible. These are the stories that don't get made into cute little cartoon characters. These are the stories that uh, aren't put onto cute little verses and sent around Instagram and WhatsApp. These are stories that sometimes shake us to our core. And we as Christians have either learnt to explain them away very briefly, or we've learnt to ignore them. Maybe we're completely unaware they exist. But what happens from time to time is that a Christian will be reading through their Bible and come face to face with some of these shocking stories, and it shocks their faith. Some of the violence that comes out of their stories is incompatible with the God they know and love, with Jesus of the New Testament. And now, what do I do with this? Now, skeptics love those stories because atheists and skeptics who do the debating, whether it be through their books or YouTube or Facebook, they love taking these stories and shocking us Christians with these stories saying, how is it? That your loving God has this story in the Bible. This is what led to Richard Dawkins to say in his very famous book, The God Delusion. This is what he says about the God of the Bible based on these darker stories in the Bible. He says, God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, bully. So Stephen, what parts of the Bible are you talking about? What is Richard Dawkins referring to here? Well, one of the greatest stories of the Bible is a story that we maybe know very well, the story of the Exodus where God powerfully redeems His people. He He saves them from 400 years of slavery. He works powerfully by performing miracles through His servant Moses. He opens up the Red Sea for them. They go into the wanderings, and every time there's a doubt, and every time there's a complaint, God disciplines them and he shows them such grace and mercy his presence is with them his provision is with them his power is with them eventually we get to Joshua chapter 1 we get to the River Jordan God opens the River Jordan for them we love Joshua chapter 1 we love be strong and courageous one of those it is an amazing verse one of those verses we love sticking on pictures of mountains because it makes us feel strong right we get to Joshua chapter 1 we see Joshua courageous leading his people into Canaan. We see the story of Jericho and how the people walked around the city in faith and confidence and how God came through for them. And at the sound of a trumpet, the walls came down and we go, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Amen. Joshua chapter 6 verses 20 is the verse that tells us the last part of that story. When trumpets sounded, the people shouted And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. And that is where we close our Bibles. That is the end of the story as far as we are concerned. And we say, oh Lord, won't you do the same things in our day? Let's read the very next verse. They devoted the city to the Lord. And destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. I don't think you've ever received a WhatsApp with that verse on a picture of a sunset, right? What's going on here in the story is not just a bunch of soldiers that have lost control. What they did in this verse was at the Lord's command. Some of you may know this darker part of the story. And over time, we're sometimes trained to turn a blind eye to it and kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's part of God's story. That's part of God's plan. But we don't really need to think about that too deeply. But if we had to stare that verse in the eyes and come to grips with exactly what happened on that day, just trying to understand the bloodshed and the violence of that moment. And if we think about some of the things that have sickened us in our recent history, if we think about some of the violence we're seeing in Afghanistan, and if we think about the threats that is being experienced by Afghanistanis and by Christians and those of other minorities, if we think about ISIS and what happened in Syria a number of years ago, if we think about what is happening right now, some of the the ethnic cleansing where entire villages are being taken down by the sword right now by jihadists in northern Mozambique, if we think about how that sickens us, rightly so, then we as Christians open up our Bibles, skeptics and atheists open up our Bibles, And they see the very same thing. And it really seems as if God is giving a giant thumbs up for all of that. Now, this is probably one of the most difficult sermons I've ever had to preach. Primarily because of the nature of the content. That we are coming face to face with the difficulty of the violence being in our scriptures. And what do we do with that? Secondly, I have heard a number of trite and I would even go on to say cold-hearted, one-liner responses to complex, difficult, violent stories like this. And I am so nervous that we do such an injustice to who God is, to His plans to the dignity of people struggling with these issues when we give these often these cold-hearted trite one-liner responses. This is also difficult because I think to truly answer this question well I would need 20 hours not 20 minutes. Fourthly this is a very emotive question. Maybe this is the first time you're coming face to face with this question Maybe you have wrestled with this question. Maybe you don't know what to do with this question. This is highly emotive. And so what do we do with this? And when we're emotive and when we're sick, and it's sometimes hard to take a step back and deal with it well. And finally, we in our modern microwaveable social media world have become so comfortable with having our theology developed by Twitter-length theologies. We want to take that verse, that statement, and stick it on a picture. And that is what defines our faith. Now, let me say, I poke fun at that. There is nothing wrong with that. But if our whole theology is made up by a couple of tiny verses and tiny theologies that we stick onto pictures and share around social media, I'm going to invite you to be stretched. We have to think about this in long form ways. We have to be able to grow and hold on to some nuances here and some different angles here. And that is exactly what I'm going to try and do in the next minutes that we have together is I'm going to try and answer this question. That if God ordered what happened here in Joshua, does that make God a murderer? And how do we reconcile that with the God that we know and love and the God of the New Testament? So in order to do that, we're going to look at this from five different angles. And angle number one is this. Why is this even a problem? Why is this even a problem? And primarily I'm addressing this angle to skeptics and to atheists. That if we are assuming that if God ordered this genocide, and that is our understanding of what is going on here then that is immoral. That means Christians worship an immoral God. I want to say to you, why is that a problem? Because if there is no God, there is no objective morality. By what standard do you condemn the story? By what standard do you condemn God? Now I know this is quite philosophical, but even Richard Dawkins conceded, he said, if there is no God, there is no objective morality. I can say I don't like this story, but I don't get to say that genocide is wrong, that God was wrong or evil in the story or immoral. I don't get to say that what's happening in northern Mozambique is wrong. I don't get to say that sex trafficking is wrong because there is no objective moral standard in fact if anything if we look at the natural world and if the natural world contains everything that led us to this point as darwin said the natural world is red in tooth and claw in other words we love the puppies we love the dolphins we love the rainbows just watch for five minutes longer what happens in the natural world the natural world is ruled by violence and by death In fact, evolution demands violence and death in order for it to do what it does. And so if there is no moral standard, and if violence is the order of nature, how is it that I've got a problem with what the Christian God is doing over here? I talk a lot more about that in my book, The Reason for Everything, but that leads us to angle number two. And angle number two is that this is a story of God's patience as well as his justice. Look, if this was simply a story of of God saying, listen, I want my children on this land. Oh, but there's a bunch of Canaanites there. So let's kill them violently, get them out the way. So my children can, can come in and they can have a big fat holy spiritual party there. Then, then yes, that's often how the story is caricatured. But then yes we should all be sickened by that kind of a concept. But that is not what's going on here. This is not some random ethnic cleansing so that God's people can have this playground and we're just killing those in the way. You see, if we go long before that, to Genesis chapter 15 with God covenants with Abraham, in verse 13, this is what God says to Abraham. Know for certain That your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. Highlight, circle, underline, 400 years. God is predicting that Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you, but your descendants are going to make their way down to Egypt. And over the course of 400 years, they're going to be enslaved. Then we get to three verses later, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. After 400 years, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites. This is one of the words given for all the people that were living in the land of Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. What God is predicting here is that The Canaanitic culture or the Amorite culture is going to get increasingly depraved and despite warnings such as this, they are going to get more and more and more depraved until their sin has reached full measure. In other words, until they almost cannot be even more depraved. We know from the Bible and from archaeological evidence that one of the things they would do, for example is their god is Moloch, and they would take their children and they would place it on the altar to Moloch, a brazen, fire-hot metal altar, and they would place their children on there as a sacrifice to Moloch. The Greek writer Plutarch mentions that the surrounding villages would beat their drums so that the parents couldn't hear the screams of their children. And over the course of 400 years, this culture just got increasingly wicked and violence and depraved. Now think about that 400 years. We see what happened in Syria, North and South Sudan, Northern Mozambique. And we are second. And after four minutes of that, or four hours or four days or four months or even four years we're praying to God to intervene and God demonstrated such incredible divine patience by warning this culture for 400 years and then he did intervene he did intervene he did confront their evil oh no but now we've got to problem with that. We've got a problem when God doesn't intervene, and then we've got a problem when God does intervene and confront such evil and violence. I want to show you some insight that we can glean into God's heart when it comes to stuff like this. In the book of Genesis, we see Abraham, who God tells that, I'm going to destroy Sodom for very similar depraved reasons. I'm going to destroy Sodom, and Abraham says, Listen, God, if I can find 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you stay your hand of judgment? God says, sure. If there are 50 righteous people in this city, I will not destroy it. Abraham takes another chance. Okay, what about five less than that? What about 45? God says, for 45 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. What about 40? Yes, that's fine. What about 30? What about 20? What about 10 was his final offer? God, if we can find 10, 10 righteous people in this entire depraved city, will you stay your hand of judgment? God says, for 10 righteous people, I will not destroy the city. There were not 10 righteous people in that depraved city and God destroyed Sodom. But this demonstrates God's heart. God doesn't just go in and destroy cities and entire cultures and wipe them off the face of the earth capriciously. God had good reason for it. And so we can understand from this that this culture was truly violent and depraved and perverted in all things. Okay, Stephen, but what about the children? Well, i don't have time to really deep dive into this but if there is and personally i do think there is but if there is an age of moral responsibility under which if a child dies they go into the kingdom of god then what happened here as violent as their ending was was an act of mercy because they would have died violently And it would have been absolutely horrible. I acknowledge that. However, in the greater scheme of things, they would have been saved from growing up in this culture and becoming as depraved as all the adults in that culture, where they would have faced an eternity of God's hostility. So what is going on here is that despite this brief suffering, they are invited into God's eternal joy. And so while it does challenge our mindsets on some of these things, this is a mercy. So here we do see, we do see that God is using His people as an instrument of His justice. After 400 years of warning this nation and seeing their corruption grow. And therefore in this, we see God's patience as well as His justice. Now let's talk about angle number three, and angle number three is we're going to try and understand the use of warfare language, particularly when it comes to this part of the world, the ancient Near East in this time. Now at first, this may sound new to you, this may sound like maybe even a bit of a cop-out, but I want you to go with me on this one. The Hebrew word that is translated to utterly destroy or to annihilate what's going on here is the Hebrew word kerem. Kerem. We're going to use this word a number of times. And what scholars have discovered through archaeology as well as what we see here in the Bible is that this word is often used and the concepts connected to this word are often used in a bit of an exaggerated sense to describe a decisive victory in other words it's not meant to be interpreted literally in such a way that there was no living being left over in fact there are some instances where the army that won kind of just just made it just eked out a victory and yet they would use this language there was not a single living thing left to describe what is going on here We use this language in a very similar sense. For example, if uh, Arsenal beats Man United, I don't know where you stand on those issues. We would say, your Arsenal annihilated Man U. Now you say, yeah, but, but we know what they mean by that. Well, I think scholars would argue that the readers of this text at the time would have known exactly what is going on here. This seems to be standard hyperbole, standard use of language from the time. Theologian Tim Escott puts it this way. He says, This was a convincing subjugation of the promised land involving the destruction of key military strongholds, armies, and leadership, along with the driving out of much of the population. Uh, Stephen, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. You're kind of implying that maybe some things in the Bible are not true. Well, The Bible is replete with metaphors. It uses metaphorical and sometimes even hyperbolic language all the time. For example, the scriptures say that the trees of the field clap their hands. When last did you go to trees in the field and see them clapping their hands? Oh well, Stephen, well obviously that's metaphor. And Scholars would say that in the same way these authors and the people of this time would obviously know that this wasn't meant to imply that literally every single person was decimated. But not only do we see this in comparative studies with other texts from the time, but we see this in the Bible itself. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, Go and kerem the inhabitants of Canaan. That's exactly the same context. Go and kerem them. However, by the way, don't intermarry with them afterwards. Huh, so which is it? Are we going to totally karim and annihilate them? In which case there would be no inhabitants afterwards to intermarry with? Or what else is going on here? We even see this in Jeremiah 25 where God uses this language concerning his own people, Judah. Jeremiah 25 verse 9, God says, I will completely destroy them. And we know that God could never have wanted to completely destroy His people because the line of Judah still matters by the time we get to Jesus, for example. Right? We also know that many Judeans were taken into exile and survived. We know that there were many Judeans left to somehow live amongst the ruins of what the Babylonians did, but they were not completely annihilated. God did not get it wrong. Jeremiah didn't get it wrong but he was using language to describe this defeat of his people, Judah. Now let's look at angle number four. And angle number four is when we look at the story, one of the things amongst these other angles that is going on is that God wanted a holy nation. God wanted a holy nation. What does that mean? A whole bunch of good boys and girls in this particular part of the world? No, he wanted a nation that was separated unto himself. And here's the thing, God knew His people's hearts. He had seen it time and time again. He had seen it in the wilderness. He had seen it in Egypt. He had seen it in previous generations. We see it in generations to come that when His people have just a tiny gap in the door to go and go after other gods or to intermarry with foreign people and to be led into sin, they take that gap every single time. God knows that the Israelites aren't going to do evangelistic dating go and marry all these canaanites and make them god loving people doesn't work then doesn't work now and so god says i want the people who are here for my purposes i have some incredible purposes in the world i want to bless the entire world through them but i need them to be holy unto myself and for that reason we need to drive out the inhabitants of this people because this is a wicked deprived nation and if they intermarry they are going to go after their wives they're going to go after their gods they are going to go after their sin and that is exactly what happened every time after this in the new testament whenever there was an intermarriage whenever there was an altar that was still left standing we see god's people turning away from god this is what god's command said here in deuteronomy chapter 7 he says you must destroy them totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy do not intermarry with them do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and I will quickly destroy you this is what you are to do to them break down their altars smash their sacred stones Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And every time the Israelites went against these commands, we see water getting into the ship and eventually we see the ship sinking. God wanted a holy nation, which leads us to our fifth and our final angle today. And, and, and this is probably the strangest one of them all. But angle five is that God wanted to eliminate the Anakim or the Anakites. We'll describe that in a second. God wanted to eliminate the Anakim, the Anakites. Now, I do want to be honest here and to say that if you go and read most commentaries on this, if you go and read most books on this, if you go and read or watch most YouTube videos on this, This particular angle is not one that comes up very often. A guy called uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, he released a book in the last few years called Unseen Realm," where he unpacks, amongst many other things, exactly what is going on here. And he's not proposing a brand new theory saying all these other scholars are wrong. He is proposing a theory that he's trying to show we have been blind to for the last three, four, five hundred years. But he's actually the oldest theory, the oldest theory held by people, the oldest theory even held by Jewish writers at the time of Jesus. And so he's saying, why have we been so blind to what's going on here? You see, I want to show you a verse. Earlier, when I spoke about Joshua going into the promised land, one of the things that happened in that story is that he sent 12 spies in. Some of you know the story quite well. And they were to check the land out and come back and report. And in Numbers chapter 13, verses 28 to 29, this is what they said. They said, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Anak. It is the descendants of Anak that who are the Anakites or the Anakim. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, when I read verses like this, I just see a whole lot of kites and groups of people that I don't know. So I just lump them all together, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Amalekites, descendants of Anak and I go oh just a bunch of different people now I read from numbers 13 verses 28 to 29 let's read a few verses later this 32 to 33 the land we explored devours those living in it all the people we saw there are of great size highlight circle and a line we saw the Nephilim there Oh, by the way, in brackets, the descendants of Anak, the Anakim, the Anakites, they come from the Nephilim, close brackets. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. So the Anakites are the descendants of the Nephilim and they are described as huge people. Now to fully understand what is going on here, I do not have the time but this really did happen coincidentally. I've already made this week's Glad You Asked midweek video and it is on exactly this. Who are the Nephilim? And all I can say today is the Nephilim are the offspring of this group of beings known as the sons of God and the daughters of men and their descendants are the Anakites, who are described as this giant race, these huge people. And if we look in at all the references where the Anakim are described geographically in the land of Canaan, they are always restricted to the hill country. We actually saw that in this verse earlier. They are always restricted to the hill country, whereas there are other groups of people that are in other flatter, lower lying parts of the country. And so when we see this Kerem language, this Kerem language, this annihilate language, this destroy everything language, it is exclusively used with regards to the cities that are in the hill country. Whereas when it comes to some of the other cities, other words are used like drive them out. So Stephen, I don't know, are you connecting dots here that shouldn't be? Joined here? Well, listen to how Joshua summarizes the conquest in Joshua 11, verses 21 to 22. It says here, at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, the giant clan. The Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Deborah, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashod did any survive which was Philistine territory. Did Joshua say there were no people left? No. Did Joshua say there were no Canaanites left? No. He says there are no Anakites or Anakim left oh and by the way some made it to philistine territory gaza Gath, and ashdod and by the way where did goliath come from Gath. goliath the giant who one of god's people had to destroy i mean how is it that we haven't been taught this how is it that we're not seeing what's really going on here so for the most part God wanted to drive out and dispossess the Canaanites of the land. After 400 years of patiently warning them and seeing them become increasingly corrupt, he did bring justice upon them. He didn't want his people intermarrying with them. And God wanted to destroy the unholy progeny of the Nephilim. Now, these stories are shocking. But these stories aren't stories for what you get to do when you're annoyed with your neighbor. These stories are not stories that are meant for the nation of South Africa or for the nation of the USA. This was a very unique period of time where God was establishing the nation of Israel for His purposes for them. He wanted to bless the nations through them. He wanted a holy nation from which ultimately the Messiah would come, through which the nations of the world would be truly blessed. And so the mission of God is not currently limited to national lines. And therefore, we, not, we do not propagate the kingdom of God with the sword, but with the heart and the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. To quote Matt Chandler, we wage war with love. Now, no sermon on this would be complete without highlighting God's true relationship to violence. God is not this mob boss who at random whims just destroys people. God is just. He's perfectly just. God is perfectly righteous in his evaluations of all things. So how then does God relate to violence? Well, I need to take you to the cross where the son of God, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man experienced on one hand, the violence, the full throated violence of a violent nation. And he experienced the full, justice of God against all injustice in all of humanity. Where God came against the injustices of the Canaanites, and what's happening in northern Mozambique, and what's happened in some of your lives, and some of the sin that destroys us, and Jesus himself experienced the full justice of God. God is not this innocent bystander when it comes to violence God confronts sin and violence and we see this most clearly on the cross where Jesus stood in the way on our behalf and on behalf of our enemies and that is what we proclaim that is what we demonstrate and that is how we see God relating to the violence of this world Father, I have no idea how everyone who's listening to this is processing this. This is heavy, heavy, deep, emotional stuff. And I don't know if we will ever be free of the tension that comes with stories like this and trying to understand you. Will we ever fully understand you, God? Will we ever be fully satisfied? Or capable of understanding your explanations. God I do pray. That as we do try and soberly understand what is going on here. I do pray that there is light. I do pray that our faith is not destroyed by this. I do pray that we are given ways of dealing with people who do struggle with, include, with this. Including those who don't know you. God, I pray that we've grown in this, that we've matured in this. But first and foremost, I pray that we see you, Jesus, the one who took on the violence of the world and the full justice of God, standing in our way, not just the way of these evil people, but you died for my sin. You took my sin as seriously as this sin. And you died for me so that you can treat me graciously and not like this. We love you, Jesus. You took on this violence so that I don't have to. And you did it for love. You did it for the joy set before you. Jesus, you are the brightest light that shines onto this story. So Holy Spirit as we meditate on this, as we think on this, would you shine light on our hearts and on your word through the light of the cross. Holy Spirit help us in this. We pray this in your name. Amen.